from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Saturday morning, June 21st. Jinx rolled over and looked at his watch. It was 7 a.m. He had still got another hour of sleep if he wanted it, but he wasn't sleepy. Nor, he reflected, was he tired. His excitement was fresh, not any hint of nervous tension. That was good. He climbed out of bed and went over to the timers, a pair of small aluminum boxes, each the size of a paperback book. He picked one up and slid back the cover, exposing the workings. Two dials and backs of button-shaped mercury batteries. One dial was a miniature galvometer, which recorded the battery charge. The other was the face of an Omega wristwatch chronometer, extremely accurate, which provided the clockwork mechanism for the timers. Hello, and welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Hunter, and I am joined, uh, as I, I believe I am contractually obligated to uh, be joined by twice a week, uh, by my dearest co-host, Mr. Hugh. And uh, this is, for Christ's sake, the show where we recap uh, the oeuvre of Monsieur Michael Crichton, chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, today we are tackling yet another chapter of uh, Michael's, if I can be so presumptive and uh, call him <laughs> that, uh, first published novel under the nom de guerre, uh, Jean Lange, uh, and the novel is called Odds On. Uh, and if our if our last chapter was perhaps the least substantial yet most pornographic chapter we've covered so far, uh, this chapter is the least substantial and the least pornographic one we've covered so far. So uh, each one's got something going for it. But uh, shall we recap a little bit and uh, you know get to the point where we left our characters last time? Okay, so nothing of substance happened in the last chapter, as you've already alluded to except for the revelation that the police presence that has uh, suddenly inveigled itself upon this hotel is due not to some actual police operation, but to the wedding of the daughter of a police commissioner. Yes. And it is important to mention, too, that Jinx and Jenny uh, make the beast with two backs. Uh, is it important to mention? <laughs> well, it, it will come up as we discuss one of the little parts of this chapter. That's true, that's true. Um, in a horrifying and uh, pretty rapey little section, which, uh, you know, I, I know that it caused me discomfort to read. I'm sure the same was felt by you. Yep. Uh, refer to our last episode for an extended uh, dissection of said, of said sex scene. Uh, listener, if you thought that the last chapter was insubstantial and filled with no narrative or point of own. Well, wait till you listen to our summation of this chapter. Oh, wait. Uh, which is comprised of nothing. Uh, there's one little plot advancement, and that's it. Well, I guess there are a couple of events. So, like, technically, Jenks does a couple of things that 
uh, required for this plan to succeed. Mm. Namely, he uh, installs one of the bombs at the top of a telephone line, mm. so it will cut the communications uh, from this hotel at a certain point. That's true. And he also installs uh, a charge of dynamite at the bottom of a bridge. Mm. The bridge, in fact, that uh, links this island hotel to the mainland. Uh, and that's pretty much all of the Jake stuff of this chapter. He does talk to Brady, who is supposedly checking out of the hotel. Brady checks out. Another great Woodhouse novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, another great Nazi collaborator novel. Hey, hey. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a low blow, I'll admit. But it is not a low blow that Woodhouse did collaborate with the Nazis. So. When you collaborate, I think puts it a little bit too strongly. <laughs> I he, mean, he did record. He was you know, captured by the Nazis. He did record. He agreed broadcast. to record propaganda uh, broadcast. innocuous, <laughs> subtly critical broadcast about his captivity. Very convincing. He was extremely ignorant and naive about mm. exactly what he was doing. But I'll have you know, he was defended by none other than George Orwell. <laughs> well, on his uh, return to England. Well, Orwell was wrong on occasion. See his uh, never, he was lengthy, never wrong. lengthy diatribes about feminism, for instance. Never wrong. Uh, okay. <laughs> So anyway, so Jenks plants this bomb. He talks to Brady. Uh, Brady is supposedly checking out the hotel, and he's picked up by the skinny man who was uh, following Jenks around Barcelona. Uh, and I gotta say, I do not think we'll see the last of these characters. But no, no. So it seems that way because uh, Alan Brady has kindly allowed Jenks to take his um, sea-facing hotel room. Yes. Now that he's concluded his stay. And they appear to be leaving for other climbs. But as someone who has read literally thousands of books before you, I must say that uh, I can't imagine that Brady would be introduced just to be disposed like this. No. There must be some okay. other narrative significance to his role. Have you read thousands of books? I reckon I have not reached a thousand. Uh, in your entire life? In my entire life. Uh, I would say that in my prime, my prime years of college, I would, in high school, I would read at least 100 books a year. So, yes. I've never, never read that many books in a year. Never. But uh, I used to be much more interested in literature as an art form and uh, much more, much better at uh, reading, say, uh, 30 or 40 pages in a setting than I am now. Anyway, uh, back to the topic at hand, or the chapter at hand, rather. Um, we kind of get like a panoramic view of the various uh, characters in the hotel arena. And by which I mean, we don't really get that, but we get... Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we get a, a little chapter with uh, Miss Elizabeth Shaw. Uh, what, what does she do, Hugh? Did she do anything besides the one character trait that she's been afforded? Which is that she loves bananas. <laughs> yep. No, she eats a banana. That's it. It's kind of I, 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 from that little description. I was kind of expecting that um, this entire uh, chapter would be like little like what what are the characters up to, you know, leading into this heist. But uh, my my thinking on that was thwarted. Uh, so we get a little bit with Miss Shaw eating a banana. I will say I will say that in Crichton's defense, because we have tarred him with the brush of 
um, portraying all the female characters in the same way on prior recordings of this podcast. The one exception is Miss Shaw and her one character trait <laughs> in the absence of the character trait that defines all other women <laughs> in this novel is that she loves bananas, <laughs> which, to be fair, are quite phallic. So. <laughs> but uh, you have to consider, Hugh, that she is not of a sexually desirable age. So That's true. I presume in, in Crichton's diseased and um, sexist mind that removes her uh, from having sexual desires. But the oral fixation remains. Mm. Yeah, it's just like a zombie. The the traces of life that she lived before she was a, a old sexist hag remain, <laughs> but they take the form of projected desire onto bananas. But uh, you know, maybe it was kind of implied that her and John Paul were heavy, or, or that John Paul serviced her. So that's true. I mean, like he is literally a gigolo, so he's not like. A chauffeur by trade. <laughs> I I I kind of like Miss Shaw. I have to say, she's she's the, my favorite female character at this by far. <laughs> she's the only one he's not desiring of a strong man to come and force him, himself on her. I will say, even though they're afforded much more than the female characters, their female counterparts, the male characters don't add up to a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, but that's because they're just. I mean, this is, this is a stock novel for the most part. Jinx is the brains, Miguel is the brawn, and Brian is somewhere in between. Yeah. But uh, just to push back on you a little bit, it's true that they're not dimensionalized in any way, but neither, none of the characters are. And it's more about who has agency of the sexual things. Yeah, know? that's what I mean. Like, like, the power imbalance is in favor of the men, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And that's the perspective of the whole novel. But, like... There are no real characters anywhere That's to be true. found. That's true. But uh, that itself might might not be a problem if the novel was critical at all of the sexual relations it is, but it, it does seem invested in this male fantasy of having submissive slots at your beck and call. Yes. So You know what it actually feels like? Uh-huh. It feels like a fantasia that you could enter with the help of artificial intelligence, like the <laughs> characters do in Westworld. Hmm. It does. I would agree with that. It does feel like sort of like a stock like narrative that Crichton has inserted himself in the character. I, I, I think that he identifies with Jinx quite closely, just based on the fact <laughs> that he, he's the one who's closest to the, like the weird technology in this, you know? Yeah. Because I feel like he's the most Crichton-esque touch of this entire novel. The, fun, the funny thing about this novel is that it does have the hallmarks that Crichton will carry with him throughout his career, which is the use of emerging technologies in these kind of thriller scenarios. Which is a super superficial engagement, let's say. It is, but it's kind of like an odd integration in this particular novel. It doesn't really quite fit the whole sort of James Bond luxury, exotic locale vibe. No. It seems like an odd and ill-fitting uh, accompaniment that like crops up at random junctures to remind us that there's this futuristic nonsense going on, but yeah. It doesn't really suit the fantasy. That's true. And like especially like Jenks is like the really smart one, but nonetheless he's also this like brute. Disgusting like brute. Yeah. But but that's that's why he's the figure of fantasy, you know. Because there there was a portion of this novel where they were talking about the fact that what's what's his deal? He doesn't seem to be as readily interested in women as the other characters. That's just because he hadn't uh he hadn't finished his treatment of Jenny. He, he couldn't <laughs> abuse Jenny into, uh, you know, desiring only him. 
He plays the long game, yeah. So we get a little thing with uh, Ganson coming into Jenny's room and waking her up. And asking, where where were you last afternoon? And of course, Jenny was... Jenny was busy uh, the previous afternoon, getting uh, sort of getting busy. sexually harassed by Jigs. Uh, and Ganson takes this to be a personal offense and basically storms off. That's basically the end of this little chapter. The little section of the chapter. Yep. Uh, and then... Um, there's a little bit with Brian um, driving somewhere mysterious. I actually didn't quite understand this portion of the chapter or what, what part of the plan it was supposed to be. The part where he's driving in the car and he, he's like getting behind the trucks. No, no, no. That was a nightmare. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so someone was not reading that closely. Yeah. So the only thing with Brian in this chapter is that he's at, he has a, night, a recurring nightmare. Mm. In which he is threading through lorry traffic or something. Yeah, that's that's it. That's pretty much it. We do get a little bit where Jinx is getting a, a aqua lung. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, I have to say I had never uh, heard of except for that uh, Jethro Tull song. So. The Jethro Tull album as well. Yeah, but I can't say I'm familiar with the album. Just the just that one song. If you go to images and you search aqua lung, the top. Uh, five of the Jethro Tull album. <laughs> and then we get like a diving suit with the oxygen packs on the back. I think it's just the uh, the breathing apparatus. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's carrying oxygen with you under the water. Yeah. It's an aqualung. It's just a scuba like gear. I think it's just aqualung. Do you listen to Jethro Tull? Uh, I did when I was a teenager. But just the one song. I listened to like a couple other songs, but okay. I was never a deep diver into their. Uh, All right. I just heard that Jethro Tull's last album was a Christmas album. <laughs> <laughs> was it really? Yeah. I like the sound of that. <laughs> That's Jeth- more appealing to me. The Jethro Tull Christmas album. As of 2020, is the band's most recently released studio album. Okay, then. <laughs> they also <laughs> released them. <laughs> I can't believe this. This is the funniest album title I've seen in my entire life. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, they, they had an album called j-toll.com. That was their 20th album. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So they so they were they were prog act ostensibly, but they kind of had a, an English folk connection, right? Yeah. And I just find it odd because I've just confused it in my head that... Um, they released an album called Thick as a Brick, 1972. That's the one I'm probably most familiar with, just by my brother. Mm. And I kind of sometimes confuse that with the album by the Fairport Convention, or Fairport Convention, called Unhalf Bricking. Mm. Just wondering what's the deal with English folk and bricks. <laughs> I don't know. Probably cocaine. Probably. Uh, anyway, <laughs> as given by our uh, numerous... Um, uh, detours. Detours. Uh, it's a Jethro Tull. This is not a, a chapter that warrants plus discussion, I don't think. Because there's nothing to this chapter, I'm just going to spend a beat chewing on my banana cream biscuits. Mm, let's, let's hear it. 
Okay, that's enough. So should we uh, deal with the last little bit of the chapter, which is a little Peter Ganson? Um, mm, I like this bit. This yeah, is a good fantasy bit. sequence. I think I read a lot of the last chapter, so I'll leave you to uh, read some of this one. He's riding and proud. Come on, let's hear it. Right about now. Feel crying out loud. Well, let me, uh, I'll set it up real quick, which is that, uh, so, uh, as we said earlier, uh, Ginny sort of rebukes Ganson and tells him that she fucked Jinx, basically. And then Ganson's like, I don't want to have sex with you anymore, hot girl. He he gives Jenny an ultimatum. Yes. And he's probably hoping that she will not take the bait and that she will say, no, don't be silly, you know, we'll work things out. But she's like, yeah, fine. Yeah. And in fact, she laughs him out of the hallway. So just to, just to complete the image of Peter Ganson as a, uh, as a total cuck, we get this little... Um, he's really... I would like we've used the terminology cuck and, and it is related to incel culture, but he's really an incel mm, in this novel. Yes, yes, that's true. Because he he thinks that it is his right to lay claim to Jenny. It's true, and that he deserves something in return for having uh, stuck around with her so long up to this point. Are they engaged? I don't know what they are. <laughs> there, there are references to them being engaged. But it definitely feels like it's it's his... He feels it's his right to lay claim to her body. Yeah. But... And, and you know, Jenny would be happy to give him uh, proprietary rights to her body if only he would be a man and take her like she wants. In fact, she clearly spells it out to him and says that he is not a man. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Peter leaves that exchange... Um, he goes down to the lobby and he sees his nemesis, Jenks. Mm. He spies him. And then he starts talking to himself like a, a true incel creep. Yeah. <laughs> and he fails to see what Jenny sees in Jenks. Mm. He considers him the ugliest man in the hotel. Mm. And also considers also considers her sleeping with him as a direct insult against Peter as opposed to anything that Jenny may even see in Jenks, right? Mm. Peter is trying to console himself like any good incel would. Mm. And he's resentfully eyeing off Jenks as Jenks goes about his business in the hotel, going to the buffet table to secure some hors d'oeuvres, perhaps. Mm. And uh, Peter observes, and I quote, he moved like a jock, Peter thought, a hulking, insensitive chunk of meat. And uh, he has a reminiscence about the jocks that he has encountered before. Or, as we would say these days, the chads. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, he comes up with his own theory about women. It was hero worship, that's all. A quirk of the culture that made brutes more attractive. The more beat up, the more cuts on their faces and cleat marks on their shins, the better the girls liked them. It was unnatural. <laughs> The, the other bit I wanted to quote mm, please. is the bit where Peter remembers having an encounter with Cynthia, which we covered in a previous chapter. Mm. After M Miguel unloads uh, Peter on Cynthia, rather cruelly, we thought at the time. <laughs> oh, maybe this extremely racist bit. <laughs> and then um, Cynthia proceeds to just fall immediately to sleep in mm. um, Peter's company. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we revisit that scene because Peter reminisces about it and we get some more detail. <laughs> I love the fact that this is, yeah, this is the racist bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because he uses, he uses a, a racist slur against Miguel. Yeah. Uh, sort of specifically that's directed often towards um, Mexican-American people. Yes. Which we will not repeat here, but it is no. uh, awful to say the least. But in the midst of the racism, <laughs> he also uh, lets us know what he was uh, discussing with um, Cynthia at the moment that she <laughs> Please. fell asleep. Please. Um, he was explaining. <laughs> he was explaining the thesis he planned to write on mysticism in George Eliot. It's <laughs> an interesting detail. <laughs> I feel like that's a little bit of. Uh, so maybe this is him sort of vinting because. Crichton was a literature student at Harvard before he was a medical student. Yes. In fact, he had a, a famous encounter with one of his teachers uh, mm. at that school. Yeah. Where he was convinced that he was being undergraded and that the teacher had something against him and that was why he was ranking him so low. Mm. So he submitted a thesis that was in fact plagiarised word for word from an essay written by George Orwell, the aforementioned George Orwell. Yeah. And he was given a C minus or something or a B minus. And he reasoned, well, if if George Orwell is not good enough for my teacher, then I'm clearly in the right. I'm vindicated. <laughs> Therefore, I can go on and have a successful literary career, which he did, of course. And where is that fucking lecturer? Well, uh, I think evidence of, of Crane's literary ability is you know, been strewn across this podcast, so I don't know if we need to discuss it further. But um, I think, I, you know, if I, if I could do a little bit of psychoanalysis on Michael Crichton here. Please. I think this is a projection. I think Jinx is the person that he would like to be, or maybe is at this point. I think that Crichton at this point in his life, and again, the med school years, is this before he became a doctor. He wrote this when he was in college to to pay the bills. That's that's the quote that has been thrown around about this, right? Mm-hmm. I think that Jinx is who he would like to be and maybe who he would become, you know, with his five lives and everything. Mm-hmm. And Ganson is a projection of the failed literature student that he was. <laughs> <laughs> and that basically this entire novel is a bizarre, you know, expunging of the cuck elements of Crichton's own life character. Uh, just a little armchair psychology on my behalf. Uh, feel free to uh, dispute it, I guess. Well, on, a, on an unrelated note, but sort of related note, specific to the quote that I uh, extracted, I won't profess to be an expert on George Eliot, but having read her most acclaimed novel, Middlemarch, mm-hmm. I don't get the reference to mysticism. Uh, I've read nothing that George Eliot has written, so I can't say at all. And I, 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 I almost could say that I can't recall a less mystical novel than Middlemarch. But... <laughs> well, it's in that sort of Victorian tradition of like, you know, naturalism, right? Yeah, Middlemarch is a, is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But I know nothing of George Eliot's mysticism. If that is the only evidence I can go on. Well, uh, you are an idiot, and Michael Cretton is a genius, so I think that's... Could well be the case. It's a compelling argument. 
I, I'm well aware. That's why I made it. And then we should add that Peter has a fantasy <laughs> about uh, Jenny coming crawling back to him at some unspecified point in the future when he's moved on to other exotic locales. Mm-hmm. And having a poignant, slightly sadistic, and very satisfactory reunion scene. Yes. Which results in her dissolving in tears. Yep. So, uh, Jenny has effectively been reduced in these two chapters. I mean, not like she was ever anything beyond this, but just this object to be passed around between these two men is like a symbol of power, pretty much. So, Mm. troubling things, to be sure. Um, but I think it is completely insane that this is how Crichton chooses to end his first chapter uh, of the heist, <laughs> which the entire novel has been building to up to this point. That is where well, this is only the morning. Him. That's true, but that's the introduction to the heist. Is we get this bizarre sequence where basically Ganson uh, fantasizes about um, emotionally dominating his his woman, his property, Jenks style. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's about it, right? That's it. And uh, I will see you and see you, the audience, next time on For Christ's Sake.